Please be seated. Thank you for the good singing. And we turn again in God's Word to John chapter 17. If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there with me, we're going to be looking specifically just at the first part of this, which people have called the real Lord's Prayer. That prayer, which we call the Lord's Prayer, was a prayer that he taught to his disciples, of course. But uh, uh, in some ways, not actually the Lord's own prayer. For example, he says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, plainly for us and not for him. This, though, reveals to us the heart, the soul of Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed. We're only going to look at the first third of the prayer, I say, but I would like to read to you the, the whole prayer and hope that over the next three weeks as we study this blessed chapter that many of these words and phrases will make it forever into your soul. Let's uh, read together from John chapter 17. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. For as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you, For I have given them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost, except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me 
through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, so that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me, Father. I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world, O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Amen. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, surely we come very much to the sanctuary tonight, and we hear our dear high priest making intercession for us, and we are filled with encouragement and wonder, and yet so many of the phrases in here, we find profound depths, depths of the eternal Son speaking to the eternal Father of things of which we barely know. We pray that we might be able to read and understand these things aright, to glorify you for such a wonderful and eternal work, to glorify you as is your due. We pray it for Jesus' sake. In the beginning, there were no stars, no planets, no sun, no people. There was only God, the God who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. And then at a certain point, if we can speak like that, God created the world, created us to be in his image, people who could know him, who could speak to him, who could love him. Why did he do that? That's a major question for your life, which the philosophers can't answer. Why are we here? Why did God make you? Maybe he was lonely, people have suggested. No, that's certainly not it. Right here in John 17, Jesus tells us just what it was like before the world was. Glorify me, verse 5, together with yourself, with the glory which I had before the world was. Uh, Verse 21, you and me and I and you. Or verse 26, that we would know the same love, the love with which you loved me, maybe in them and I in them. That does not sound lonely. When Jesus prays that we should share the love of the fellowship of God, It does not sound like an invitation to loneliness. God has never been a single, solitary being, an individual cut off within himself. That's not what God is like. Our God has always existed in the fullness of love and communion and joy. There's a verse in Paul's letter to the Ephesians that's quoted in the Anglican wedding service, Paul says, the Father, comma, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. That is to say, our whole experience, the whole reality of being in family, 
all of that means to us is a reflection of the God who made the world. God made us like him in his image to know him. There has always been a father who has always loved his dear son in the fellowship of love of the personal Holy Spirit. God has always enjoyed a world of pure love and fellowship, more wonderful and delightful than if you had thousands and thousands of relatives with whom you were close, whom you could love with all your hearts, and who could love you in the same way. God did not make the world because he was lonely. God has never been lonely. You take all the happiest experiences of your life when your girl said, I do, when you saw the face of your baby, your wedding day, the time when you painted that picture or wrote that poem. You take all of that love and delight and wonder together and multiply the joy of the best you have ever known in this world a million times over, and it would scarcely compare to one brief moment of the blessed life that God has always had from before the world began. God was in no way lacking or lonely or without inner fulfillment in any way whatsoever. Why then did he make us? Because God is love. John tells us elsewhere, and it is the very nature of love to be outgoing and overflowing. Love, says Paul, seeks not his own, its own. And God therefore made a world of people to love him and to be loved by him and to share in his glory as Jesus here prays that the love, in order that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. That was the purpose. That was what was planned before the world was. Or we might put it this way. God was preparing for his son in this world the best gift that a father could ever give his son. Now, we don't usually think about it that way in America in the 21st century, but there's still plenty of places in the world where they think about it this way, where the father chooses and gives his son a bride. And God's great purpose, as you can see from even reading the last page of the Bible, is that the Father has so loved his Son that he has given him a beautiful bride, a bride whom he would woo and win and rescue and redeem with his own blood. A bride who didn't initially love him, but as the song says, from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride, and with his own love he bought her, and for her life he died. And why the Father chose this bride, she doesn't know, but... If you're part of the bride of Christ, you're a part of something you see far, far bigger than you. A plan bigger than the universe itself, which started before it was made. Rooted in a covenant promise of God the Father to God the Son to give him a bride as his own lovely gift to delight in for all eternity. Now, the world is a great display of God's glory. Life is a wonderful exhibition of God's glory. But when we find this creator of the world coming into the world to give his life for our sins and to rescue us and redeem us to God, that we might share in his everlasting love and glory, that is the most astonishing display of God's glory there could be. And so, in the face of Jesus, we truly know God.
and that is our great need. We have lots of needs. We have physical needs. We have spiritual needs. But Jesus says here, verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And it's only when we know this, when we know God, that we have anything worthy of the name of life, to know why we are, whose we are, the purpose of your being here. We have the very heart of the Godhead revealed here in Jesus. And so surely we have before us one of the most treasured chapters in the Bible. Or as one writer put it, this is without a doubt the most remarkable portion of the most remarkable book in the world. Where we find our Lord Jesus making the longest prayer of the New Testament. Needless to say, the chapter before us contains many deep things that we can't ponder or plumb. We could try. Thomas Manton's sermons on this chapter run to 400 folio pages. George Newton's exposition of the chapter is 560 pages. Anthony Burgess, not to be outdone, and his expository sermons on the 17th of John comes in at 700 pages. I will have three sermons, for I am not the preacher that they were not even close. But my point is, uh, there, there are plainly great depths here as the Father is speaking such things. Uh, the Son is speaking such things to the Father. Luther said it's so deep, so rich, so wide that no one can fathom it. Or his friend Melanchthon, Philip Melanchthon said, there's no voice that has ever been heard either in heaven or on earth more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than this prayer. Well, that's a tall order. It's a challenge to preach on. I barely have even have any illustrations, which I know helps to drive it home, but every illustration I think of just doesn't match up anywhere near the reality. The prayer is divided into three parts, as it is even in so many Bible with their headings, that Jesus first prays for himself, that he would be glorified and glorify the Father, which we'll consider today. Next, for his disciples, that they would be preserved in the world, though they are not of the world. And third, he prays for us, too that the world, that we may be one, that the world may believe that the Father sent the Son and that we too would be with him to share in his love and glory. Well, today, as I say, we're just focusing on the first part of this magnificent prayer. And I feel like J.I. Packer, I told you before, who has the, the best opening line of any book I've ever read. It is classic, Knowing God. He says, uh, like clowns long to play Shakespeare, I've longed to write a book on God. And this book is not it. Um, I, I've looked forward to and longed to preach this sermon to you, and this sermon that I'm going to preach to you is not what I long to preach. It, it just falls so far short. But we will consider today the glory of Christ in the covenant of redemption. To uh, packed terms, we'll consider in order the glory of Christ in the covenant of redemption. First, the glory of Christ. Father, the hour has come. He begins. What hour? The hour that was appointed before the world was. In eternity past, in God's everlasting counsels, 
the hour for the sacrifice of the death of Christ for our redemption. God planned this hour before time began. He promised it would come. He promised that on page two of the Bible, it's been coming a long time. All through Jesus' life, five times here in the Gospel of John, Jesus mentioned this hour, but it has not come. And so the hour, the hour so long anticipated from ages and eternity past is at last come. Paul refers to it in his sermon on the day of Pentecost. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and nailed to the cross with wicked hands. This is why he was sent. Verse 3, Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Uh, you, you might notice John refers to him being sent in astonishing 41 times, far more than any other writer. This idea of this mission, the mission to glorify himself, to glorify God in Christ. Jesus had glorified him. He finished the work that the Father had given him to do. But now he says, verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. And that is the burden of the first part of Jesus' prayer. Uh, you see that again in verses 4 and 5. I have glorified you on the earth. I've finished the work that you have given to me to do. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory with which I had before the world was. As Warren explained to us earlier, um, to glorify the Lord uh, is to praise him, yes, and to make visible the attributes of the invisible God so that we marvel and love him and praise him and rejoice. And nothing causes that glory to come like the cross. Um, if you'll allow me a quote, J.C. Ryle gives the sense of Jesus' words here very well. Father, I now have glorified you. During my life on earth by keeping your law perfectly so that Satan can find no defect or blemish in me, by witnessing faithfully to your truth in opposition to the sins and false teachings of the Jews, and by showing you in your mind toward man in a way that was never known before, I have made known yourself, your character, and your attributes to my disciples. But now at the cross, let your Son bring fresh glory to your holiness and justice and mercy and faithfulness and prove to the world that you are a just God, a holy God, a merciful God, and a God who keeps his word. For nothing brings such glory to God as the completion of this redeeming work of Christ by his death, resurrection, and ascension. Ryle continues, finish your work not least so that your Son may glorify you in bringing many redeemed souls to heaven to the glory of your grace. Father, my earthly work is being now finished. I ask to be restored to your heavenly glory, which in an unspeakable manner I had with you as one co-equal in the undivided Trinity, long before the world existed, 
This period of my humiliation and self-imposed weakness is accomplished. Let me once more share your glory and sit with you on your throne as I did before my incarnation. Well, best I can explain. Jesus prays that the Father would glorify him, especially now, that he supremely would glorify the Father. In all these things, he had glorified him, but now at the cross, as the hour has come, as the hour had arrived, which was appointed from the foundation of the world, we see shocking depths in God's love and self-giving, in his goodness, that he might be just and the justifier of him who has faith in Jesus. The glory of Christ. You see why Manton preaches uh, 400 pages, right? Well, before the world was made, God had a plan to glorify himself and his son, and the plan included you. We come to our second point, the covenant of redemption. As Jesus refers again and again and again and again and again to those whom you have given me out of the world. This is beautiful, intimate speech of the Son to the Father. Don't expect that we'll be able to nail down everything in such a conversation. But you know, at the beginning of Paul's letter to Titus, he writes Titus about God's elect and the eternal life which God, who can't lie, promised before time began. Right? Who promised before time began. To whom could God make a promise before time began? There were no people before time began. Elect, we understand. Eternal life, we understand. A promise before whom, before whom did God make, to whom did God make the promise? To the Son. For before creation, there was a promise, referred to in the prophet Isaiah also as a covenant. And to keep it being confused with other covenants, it's sometimes called the covenant of redemption, this promise that is rooted in eternity, that is grounded in God himself, the gift of love that the Father has given to his Son when there was nothing, when there was no one, that God promised his beloved Son, you, sir, you, ma'am, you, ma'am. You were promised. Promised to Jesus. You were not an afterthought. One of the earliest Christian writings is called The Shepherd of Hermas, an interesting book, strange in some ways, but it makes a profound comment that the world exists for the church. The world exists for the church. It's bringing forth the fullness of of God's purpose and promise from all eternity. You are no afterthought. God has made this world to fulfill this promise to his son that you would be his. Now, Jesus could have said, well, that the Father had given him authority here to give eternal life to all who believe in him. And that would have been gloriously true. But that is not the emphasis here. Throughout, 
you notice. For again and again, what does he say? Verse 6, I've manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of this world. They were yours. You gave them to me. Verse 9, I pray for them. I don't pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me. They are yours, and mine are yours, and yours are mine. Verse 11 again, halfway through the verse. Those whom you have given me. Verse 12 again. Those whom you gave me. Down to verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me. Those whom you gave me. It's why you're here. You are not here ultimately because you raised your hand, signed a card, prayed a prayer with someone. Oh, that may have been a blessed and critical point and turning point in your life. But why? Why did that all happen? Why are you here? Why you? Because I tell you, the Father had you on his heart before there was anything else made. And in the covenant of redemption and eternity past, he promised you to the Son to love and to be loved. Your salvation did not begin with your love for him or even his love for you. Your salvation began with the Father's love for the Son. Vodi Bauckham has a wonderful sermon on this chapter. Now he can preach on this chapter. I wish I could preach like him. He says, in God's, God in his grace has included me in the greatest love story ever known. And in love, the Father gave me to the Son. In love, the Son died to redeem me. In love, the Spirit applied the redemption to me and opened my eyes so that I could love the one who first loved me. Look at Vodi Bauckham's sermon on Sermon Audio, John 17, and you will find some more profound depths open up. Am I saying we didn't choose to serve the Lord? Not at all. You know, farmers can easily embrace both sides of this truth with no problem. Um, you know, farmers know who gives the harvest, right? God gives the harvest, and which is why we have a nice Thanksgiving holiday after harvest time. And godly farmers don't say, well, if it's all up to God, it doesn't matter what I do. That would be ridiculous. Uh, that would be saying, because God is ultimately sovereign, man isn't responsible for anything. No, God blesses diligent work. God's sovereignty in no way nullifies our responsibility, but establishes it. On the other hand, some ungodly farmer might say, well, I did the work myself. I'm the one who should be thanked. Actually, saw somebody wrote that into a newspaper one year for Thanksgiving. How wicked. I did the work. I should thank myself. It's Thanksgiving for me. Well, that's the opposite mistake. Uh, Acts 14, God gives us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons. He gives to all life and breath and all things. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Thank God you have a harvest. Well, in the same way, God is sovereign and we come to Jesus. And grace has the primacy somehow. And all those counsels in eternity past when he had you on his heart are fulfilled one day in your life. <coughs> and if we do, and we don't say, well, if salvations of the Lord, we don't have to do anything. Neither do we say, well, it's all up to us. We don't even have to bother praying. God is working, and we are working. And that is the way that we should look at things in the covenant of redemption. But now the practical matter is, okay, you've laid out some very highfalutin theology today. 
covenant of redemption, glory of Christ, uh, how does this work, at, work itself out into our lives? How should this change our, our lives? I mean, I'm glad to know why I'm here. How else should that change my life? I'll just mention four ways. But obviously a profound worship is one that should be mentioned. A profound worship here in verse 10 Jesus says, all mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Here, the the purpose of all this, in part, is that the Son might have a a great people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation whom no man can number, all around the throne, praising the Lord, praising the Lamb, worthy is the Lamb who was slain, all glorifying the Son, glorifying the Father. So in the eternal covenant, in the wonders of God's eternal gracious love, what is it supposed to do for us? Well, to call forth love, for one thing, right? That we love him because he first loved us. Romans 5, God demonstrates his own love toward us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ is surely appointed as the Savior of the world so that all who believe and come may be saved. That is a glorious, important truth. Jesus calls and invites, nay, commands and urges you with tears to come to him and be saved. That speaks to our human responsibility. But in such a chapter as this, when we begin to overhear the Son's conversation with the Father, and we look at God's side of things when we see God's love is so wonderful, is so personal, is so particular, and whoever rightly believes in God's sovereignty will then realize Me? You loved me? A personal, loving, wonderful relationship with God? That is why I'm here? That's why all this is happening? That we should glorify him and love him and be enfolded into this love and glory which Jesus himself had with his Father. And he's glorified now when we praise him. And he's glorified when we trust him, especially in our trials. And he's glorified when we are full of his joy and lost in wonder. And he is glorified when we are telling others about him and see them trust in him. And may he be glorified in us if this is why we have been made to share in this love and glory. We'll glorify the Lord, people. A profound worship. Second, a practical humility, which is, I suppose, the other side of the coin. Uh, In this same chapter, we're reminded that it is God who first gave us to the Son before the world was, who therefore preserves us still in answer to the Son's prayers, right? Preserve those, keep those. I kept them, now you keep them as I'm coming to you. So if it's of the Lord, if he gave us, gave us to the Son, if he's preserved us to this day, what have we to boast about? Paul makes this very explicit elsewhere, as we uh, prayed earlier in our bulletin. Of him you are in Christ Jesus. Of God you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Where he goes on in a couple chapters then to ask, who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you didn't receive? 
Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? So, there ought to be a humility, and practically speaking, that humility should be expressed toward others as well. When we remember that God is the one who has made us to differ, that God is ultimately the one who gives repentance, as we read elsewhere, and the knowledge of Christ, you're not going to argue and quarrel in any sort of proud way, but as Paul writes, the Lord's servant must be gentle, uh, in patience, correcting others, in humility. Um, If we think that we have any spiritual accomplishment on our own, we will tend to rely upon ourselves and give ourselves at least part of the credit for what we've done. But we understand God's mercy. And His sovereignty produces a wholesome distrust of ourselves and a prayerful dependence. Oh, Lord, it's all of you. I don't want to be like Peter boasting, proud, I'll do it. Watch and pray, Peter. Practical humility. And a prayerful diligence, the third thing. If you're taking notes, a profound worship, a practical humility, a prayerful diligence. Jesus prays here, as he sends them into the world, that they would be sanctified from the world, which is our prayer and striving as well. These are mine. I send them into the world. Holy Father, keep them. For you've given them to me. This is to be our striving as well. Paul said this way, You are not your own. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Here's the great reason for holiness. Not even so much to do with us. We're not ours. We're His. He's bought us. Here's a good reason for holiness. We're not our own. And that means that we have a reason to go on. When we don't feel like going on. And we can say with the Apostle, even when very discouraged, even as he wrote from prison, I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. You see how he's putting these things together. Christ has laid hold of me. I must press on to lay hold of that for which he has done so. Or we can then say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me because we know that your salvation is not rooted in any fickle feeling. It's in eternity in counsels past. And we can therefore say with confidence, I can do all things that, through Christ who strengthens me. Oh no, the devil whispers, no you can't. Yes I can, he will not let me go. 
To this end, Paul could say, I labor, striving according to the working with, which works in me mightily. Excuse me, his working which works in me mightily. Yes, I labor, I strive, but it's only according to his working. Now, we can't know God's plans in advance like Jesus did, of course, but we can know that if this is what the Lord has intended from eternity past, that indeed he is sovereign over every trial that comes into our lives, that our hours likewise are appointed by his wisdom. Jesus himself enduring the cross, knowing that the Father had determined that hour from him, that we likewise can endure the hours of our life, knowing that God is in control of history, directing your history, wanting to be glorified, as others see you through prayer and perseverance, with trust and joy in him, going through those difficulties and trials? Here is the source of your confidence in this chapter, in this, in this conversation about eternal purposes. We find a source of confidence. Yes, we are definitely a work in progress, so unworthy in so many ways. We say, why us? But he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. That God will preserve his saints and despite every, every last failing of ours, every last sin which he knew beforehand, we must not become discouraged or despair but come again to our loving Lord. And when you face difficult times, and there was never a more difficult situation than that of Jesus in the cross, it's an important fact to remember, as the Lord does here, that the Father has all things in his hands. And we press on a prayerful diligence, you see. And fourth and finally, these are to produce a passionate witness. Because now we can see. God can save that lost friend. God can heal that hopeless marriage. God can cure that destitute, destitute drug addict. That the Lord of this chapter sends out his disciples, we read, to bear a great witness in the world, having prayed for those who will believe, who will now surely believe in him through their words. That this is the purpose. Not just that we love God, not just that he loved the world and sent his son. John 3.16, that the Father has loved the Son and that we have been called and caught up into that love and that it will be fulfilled. It will be fulfilled. And we can therefore, with the best of good news, go into the world and see that joy and love and glory spread. We're the only religion that has good news, anything like this. And what a glory it is. Paul can say, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation 
which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. A passionate witness. Well, Vodi, again, I conclude. The fact that the Father gave us to the Son means that we are treasured by the Lord Jesus. If someone gives you a valuable gift, you protect it and keep it in a safe place because you treasure it. The fact that the Father chose you and gave you to Jesus and he purchased your salvation with his blood means he isn't going to lose you. Christ didn't die for you because you were valuable, as I've heard some teach. Rather, you're valuable because Christ died for you. You can be secure in your salvation because you are the Father's gift to His Son, end quote. It's wonderful to be able to overhear a prayer of Jesus, isn't it? It was uh, Robert Murray McShane who uh, once wrote... If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I wouldn't fear a million enemies. But this is our confidence today, you see. Distance makes no difference. He is praying. He's praying for you. He's keeping you. He's loving you. He's loved you before you were. He will love you to the end, and you will be with him forever, forever. It's good to be in the upper room with Jesus at prayer. Let us pray. We thank you, our Savior, for opening the heart of God to us. We confess that sometimes you feel so distant We wonder even if you really care or notice. And in such moments, which are our shame, in those moments to come, we pray that you would remind us of such a conversation that has taken place. As the Lord prepared to go to his death for us, that our Lord continues to make intercession for us according to your will as his word and prayer will surely be answered for us to glorify him. O Lord, we long to give ourselves. May you be glorified in us. Help us henceforth to see our whole lives and future according to this eternal purpose and to rise to it. That's in Jesus.